We're all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God and everything I write. Yeah. Welcome to this week's On One with Angela Rye podcast. Notorious ACB does not have the same notoriety as Notorious RBG. And what is really notorious is the Senate Republicans for trying to bulldoze the traditional Supreme Court nominations process. So we have assembled an all-star legal panel today that also reflects how the Supreme Court should look and probably also think. Here to break it all the way down like a fraction are Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Christopher Kang, Chief Counsel of Demand Justice, Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent at The Nation, and Tina Chen, President and CEO of Time's Up. Hello, everybody. Hey, Angela. Hi. Hey. Thank you all so much for being here. So I want to start with giving honor where honor is due, and that is to start with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we lost on September 18th. Um, I feel like she held on just as long as she possibly could. And for that, I say thank you um, to RBG, to the to the real Notorious. Um, and I just wanted to give you all the opportunity to just share some thoughts on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, on her impact in the jurisprudence in which she um, wrote some phenomenal opinions, including just two words, I dissent. Um, and, you know, anything else on your hearts to share about that? Because then we're going to get into the battle that is the Supreme Court nomination. But I really want to give her some um, some time, her just due. Well, if you're a lover of justice, then you definitely are feeling this. You're feeling the loss of Justice Ginsburg on the court right now. Um, having been inside the court, you know, it was always great to see her in action. She was always an active questioner, questioner, always asking all of the tough questions and 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 really pushing um, the the oralists who stood before her. I also think though about Thurgood Marshall and what he meant for the court. And, you know, Thurgood Marshall was somebody who dedicated his career to the practice of civil rights law when he was appointed in 1967. And Justice Ginsburg, frankly, is the only uh, second civil rights lawyer to sit on the court. So right now we're at a moment where there's that void, that vacancy in terms of somebody who brings that lens to the issues that come before the court. And so for me, um, that really matters because we're not getting that with this nominee that has been put forward. No, I'm, I'll pick up, Kristen. I agree with you completely. I mean, this, this, her career, even before she got on the court, is astonishing. I mean, and all of us who are working women, who are women who can sign our own credit card applications and hold a mortgage in our own name and pursue our careers, including as um, Alexis McGill Johnson wrote this morning, you know, including the current nominee to the court. We owe our ability to do that to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, she dreamed up the idea that the Equal Protection Clause should cover women equally. Otherwise, we weren't in there. You know, we were not, you know, the kinds of uh, laws that kept women out of the economic life of our country um, were not challenged until she had the 
foresight, quite frankly, and the legal ability to think that up and pursue that. And so even before she got on the court, like Thurgood Marshall, she had transformed the landscape forever for all of us. And my dog is barking at somebody, so <laughs> sorry about that. I get it. It's okay, Tina. Go ahead, Ellie. I see you. Uh, yeah, my my story about Ginsburg is is a personal one. Uh, so when I was in high school, I was on mock trial, and uh, we you know went to states or nationals, or whatever. And one of the guest judges was Antonin Scalia. Um, and then after the thing, he 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 gave a talk for you know for the kids, and we got to ask him questions, and I asked him the question, and Antonin Scalia made fun of me. Um, I, I asked him how he squared his opinions about originalism. I didn't know it was called originalism, so I said, you know, founding intent or whatever. Uh, but how he squared those opinions with Brown v. Board of Ed, which was obviously against the original intent of the founding slavers, um, yet like super important, right? And he laughed at me, and then so everybody else laughed, and he was like, I don't know what they're teaching in your school, and everybody else laughed, and there was a bunch of like jokes, and then some like really, uh, not a really credible answer I would later learn. Um, so you kind of, you know, and they made fun of me and dismissed me, and, and, and I sat down kind of embarrassed. Somehow Ginsburg heard this story. I imagine now that since they were friends, he was probably bragging at some point about how he made fun of this 17-year-old or 16-year-old. Um, but anyway, some, she somehow got a message to my mock trial teacher um, that was, tell that, tell that kid to keep descending. Which, you know, it is, again, I didn't even realize how awesome and amazing it was at the time because I'm, you know, 16, 17-year-old kid. But it really, to me, goes to show that, you know, at, even in a kind of social setting, in a in a, in a private setting, as it must have been for her to have heard the story, uh, the her her commitment to raising credible questions and raising dissents and not backing down, um, she lived that right, um, and she gave me a nice little note when I was a kid uh, to to keep trying. <laughs> Oh, my God. So first of all, I'm struck by the fact that, yes, she reached out to you, Ellie. But why did you know what originalist was in high school? Like, <laughs> I learned about that in, like, the constitutional law class almost when I was graduating college. And here you go. Ellie, I'm sick of you already. Again, I didn't know the right word for it. <laughs> I'm not doing this with you. You knew what it was. I'm not doing this. It's fine. He's brilliant, y'all. This is Hava talking. Um, Chris, I want, you, I want you to weigh in here, too, especially given the role you had with the Obama administration of, of vetting um, judges. Uh, you know, how this makes you feel having served in that role. And then, of course, given your, your passion to ensure that people who think fairly um, in these processes are actually put on the bench. So I really want to hear from you as well. Yeah, um, I don't I don't have an amazing story like Ellie, but but I do think that who it, does? It, it, <laughs> right? uh, but I do think it's incredible because a lot of us draw the parallels between Thurgood Marshall and and Justice Ginsburg and the doors that she opened and the way she changed the law. Uh, but she didn't take those comparisons herself. Right. She understood and she said, don't compare me to Thurgood Marshall, my life was never in danger the way his was. She understood sort of the impact and that she had she faced discrimination in a very different way. And I think that what I think that really brings to bear is how important this diversity of experience is, how much important it is to have people from different walks of life, people from different professional backgrounds, people who really understand 
what civil rights and equality are all about and sort of what privilege some of us have, even while we have struggles in other aspects of life. And so I just think she brought that. She brought that humanity. She brought that perspective. For a time, she was the only woman on the court. Uh, and I also just think that just even having this moment, a few moments here to reflect on her legacy and sort of what it's meant to us, I think is really important. And it's just that basic decency uh, that Republicans haven't had, right? That within an hour, Mitch McConnell saying he's going he's gonna to fill his seat before Justice Ginsburg's been even been buried. Donald Trump is nominating somebody and, just, and Judge Barrett is accepting the nomination. Like, not the way any of this process is supposed to work. That's not the way the process worked in 2016 after Justice Scalia suddenly passed away. And I think like it's just important to recognize just how crass this whole thing is from sort of soup to nuts, that it's not just about what they're trying to do substantively on the court to accomplish all of these goals that they couldn't accomplish through Congress, but just the lack of, of frankly, human decency that's involved, I think really appalling. So I think part of this, too, um, there are a lot of people who maybe they're surprised by the inner nerd that I have around um, the law um, being a lawyer, because normally I'm like, again, as I started talking about breaking things down like a fraction, I'm all the way in the like, let me just make sure this is bare bones, super clear to you. So one of the things I think I failed at so far is telling people why they should care. I know why I care. Like, I'll sit up and read a legal decision, you know what I mean, and read a dissenting opinion. And yes, I do know what originalist is, Ellie, now. But <laughs> but I, I do want for people who are at home and they're thinking about the bill they might not be able to pay and the second stimulus check they didn't get because Congress can't get the HEROES Act across the finish line and no support from Donald Trump. Why should people who, um, you know, didn't go to law school or, or haven't had a case before the Supreme Court or maybe any court, why should they care? And I want to open that up to all of you because I think it's important to get, go ahead, Ellie, to get all of your perspectives. The Democrats in generally have done a terrible job messaging why the Supreme Court is important, right? Like, you know, Republican, I don't think the base Republican voter is any smarter than the base Democratic voter, but the base Republican voter knows like, oh, I don't, I don't like those, those, those men's kissing on each other. What do I do? Supreme Court, the Republicans say, right? Our side doesn't make that one-to-one -one connection. So if you care about climate change, that means you care about the Supreme Court because you need a what's called robust interpretation of the Commerce Clause in order for regulations to go through, right? I don't need you to understand what Chevron deference is. I need you to understand that they want to take away the very thing that allows the EPA to make laws and make regulations in the society. And in this particular moment, as we are as we stand, sit here and talk to you so soon after the death of George Floyd, um, so soon after the shooting of Jacob Blake, so soon after the, the, the cover-up of Breonna Taylor's murder. There is a case right now that will be argued in front of the Supreme Court on October 14th, I believe. It's called Madrid, Torres v. Madrid. This is a case where um, the cops in New Mexico shot a woman in the back twice um, in a kind of botched raid or botched stakeout situation. 
She was able to drive away. She got away. Um, they arrested her at the hospital. They didn't charge the cops for shooting her twice because we don't charge cops for shooting black people uh, or brown people in this case. Uh, um, uh, Torres was a Latino woman. Uh, but they, uh, so they didn't charge them with uh, for a crime. But later, Torres did charge them for excessive use of force under the Fourth Amendment. The 10th Circuit ruled that excessive use of force could not be used because she wasn't seized at the scene. Plugging two bullets into her back didn't count as a seizure under the Fourth Amendment, according to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. These are the kinds of cases that end up in front of the Supreme Court. These are the kinds of cases that people like Amy Coney Barrett and, and, and Neil Gorsuch, who used to sit on the Tenth Circuit, um, and Brett Kavanaugh, these are the cases they judge. These are the cases they rule on, whether our Fourth Amendment rights extend to a situation where the cop shoots you in the back twice. So there is a one-to-one connection to the uprising we're seeing on our streets and our current focus on police brutality and having Supreme Court justices rule the rule that the Fourth Amendment and other constitutional protections apply to people on the streets and on the ground. You know, well, Angela, say, I'm, I'm going to add in that, you know, the, the other real life thing is we know that a week after the election, they're holding oral argument on the ACA. You know, and then and Amy Coney Barrett is someone who has written previously, right, you know, criticizing the opinion that upheld the ACA the last time it was before the Supreme Court. So in the middle of a pandemic, when Congress doesn't have the time to pick up relief for people who are and we have 200,000 people dead in this country and not, and growing, they don't have time to do that. They have time to do, as Chris described it, this crass rush to put somebody on the Supreme Court, and in order to then hear a case that has the possibility of, in the middle of a pandemic, taking health care away from 20 million Americans. That's the process that's going through. That is an additional reason, and to everything Ellie said, why people need to care. If you care about making sure there's affordable health care out there in the middle of a pandemic to people in this country, and make sure that there is birth control available to women at no cost across this country who need it, and it's directly tied to women's economic power, is their ability to you know control their own bodies and reproduction, um, then you got to care. Because this is, you know, this nominee has already spoken out against both of those principles. So I'm so glad that Angela asked this question because I feel like for a lot of people, they just don't get the Supreme Court. It's just nine people. You don't get to see them. There's no video cameras inside the courtroom. There's usually not a live feed of the oral argument, right? We make it so intangible. But for people who have had contact with the justice system at a local level, somebody who may have had to show up in traffic court or somebody who may have been stopped by the police in their local community and then they have to show up to court and they get sentenced or impose fines and fees. Like imagine all of that on steroids. That is the Supreme Court. That is this incredible body. It is the highest court in the land that is setting precedent, meaning rules, firm rules that every other lower court will have to follow for years, if not decades to come. And oftentimes, 
those precedents are good ones, like Brown versus Board of Education, which said no more segregated schools, right? Like that was a monumental moment of this court doing something right for our country. And then Roe v. Wade, right, which says that women can make decisions about their own bodies. But imagine a court that is working opposite to those principles of justice and chipping away at our rights, at our freedom, at our liberty. That's why this is such a high stakes moment. This nomination that is before us may result in a 6-3 court that is hostile, that is hostile on issues of going from voting rights, criminal justice, reproductive rights, access to health care. I mean, we are talking about moving the court in a direction where it can be producing outcomes that literally have negative impact on the lives of black and brown people, poor people, women, and other vulnerable communities for not years, not years, decades to come. Because the one thing that Trump has been masterful at is he's gone very, very young with his picks. And this would be, I think, the youngest, uh, the youngest woman, the youngest person ever to serve on the Supreme Court. She might be there for four decades uh, issuing out, you know, devastating ruling after devastating ruling that will have impact on our day to day lives. And I just wanted to bring up one case, Angela, that I think it's like a case that, you know, any of us could have um, experienced or know somebody who's gone through an experience like this, EEOC versus AutoZone. This auto shop, uh, right, there's auto zones all over the country. But um, it, several years ago, AutoZone, AutoZone made the decision that they would um, appoint employees to serve at AutoZone locations based on race. They just decided, you know what, it's, we're better off having Hispanic uh, customers served by Hispanic employees. And in this instance, they applied, they, they took a black employee and assigned him, assigned him to the far south side of Chicago. So this guy said, you know what, that is racial discrimination and I'm not going to do it. You're not going to reassign me. It's clear that you're only sending me to the south side of Chicago because I am black. And he was fired. And so the EEOC filed suit against AutoZone and it went through the courts and they said, you know what, though, he didn't get a reduction in pay. They, he, he didn't lose any of his benefits. So he kind of sort of was treated the same. And this case went up to the Seventh Circuit where Amy Coney Barrett currently sits. And the EEOC said, we would like the entire court to review this devastating decision because we are we are crystal clear that this is wrong, that this is racial discrimination. And she sided with a majority of the court in refusing to rehear that case. That's what we're getting with Amy Coney Barrett, cases that will impact our day-to-day -day lives. And I just thought about, I had like a flashback to when Bill O'Reilly criticized, um, Tina, you will remember this, um, Michelle Obama for talking about living in a house that her ancestors built. And Bill O'Reilly's response was something like, well, they were fed and they had a place to sleep. Talking about slaves, these fools. So with that, my question, and I'm channeling my inner Deborah Cox. How did we get here? 
Seriously, like what happened? Somebody walk me through how we got here. Chris talked about like the civility that existed when Antonin Scalia died and the ways in which, um, you know, Barack Obama and team, Chris, shout out to you, and Tina, shout out to you, had some sense and some decency and weren't, weren't just strategic in thinking about how you um, get a justice on the bench, but also like how you treat people with dignity regardless of their where they sit on the ideolo- ideological spectrum. So how do we get here with these Republicans who just, frankly, y'all don't give a damn? How do we get here? And I think, I know we can't write a book about it, but I do think it's worthy of us talking about some of that. So after we talk about how we get here, we talk about how we fight back. So I think that we get here because uh, because Republicans do give a damn about one thing, and it's raw political power, right? They have sought to make the courts another political partisan branch of government. And when you think about when it started, it started after Brown v. Board of Education. It started after Roe v. Wade. It started in reaction to these landmark decisions that have expanded justice and equality for the rest of us. And so this has been a decades-long march for them, while on the other hand, Democrats and progressives sort of think back to those good old days and think back to those seminal cases and think the court should be apolitical and the court should be here to sort of stand up for all of us. And that would be great if it were true, uh, but it's not true. Uh, and Republicans haven't haven't treated it like it's true for decades. And so now you're only now starting to get to the point where Democrats are understanding as much as we wish our courts were not political, we can't sit this fight out. Republicans are using the courts time after time to undermine our democracy, whether it's campaign finance reform and Citizens United, striking down parts of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County, allowing partisan gerrymandering, throwing people off the voting rolls, making it harder to unionize. Time after time, they're rewriting the rules to benefit the Republican Party and undermine our democracy. And this is what we're at now. We're at the point now where Republicans are going to steal two Supreme Court seats in the span of four years. A majority of the court will be appointed by a president who has lost the popular vote. And they will have locked in. They've already had 50, the last 50 years of the Supreme Court have been dominated by Republican appointed judges. And if Amy Coney Barrett's confirmed, it's going to be like that for the next 30 years unless Democrats do something to restore balance. But this is what it's about. It's always been about raw political power for Republicans. And unless Democrats fight back, quite frankly, it's not illogical for them, for Republicans to keep grabbing what they can because nobody's telling them not to. You know, I have to ask this, and Kristen, I'm sorry, I know you got to sit this part out because <laughs> we're talking about the, you know, just the, the brass tacks of politics and how to get in the game. I don't understand why we won't fight back. Like, so one of my questions for y'all is we kind of look back on the good old days. To me, the good old days were 2008 uh, through the beginning or through the end of 2016. Other than that, it's not no real good old days to me. So I want to ask y'all, do you have any regrets? Um, Tina, I want to hear your, your perspective on this too, but Chris, especially given your role in the Obama White House on how Merrick Garland was handled. Like one, let me, I'll tell you my regret. I really wish y'all would have picked a black woman because I don't think they could have handled it the same way. So I want to ask one, do you regret choosing Merrick Garland? It's not that he's a bad person. I know he's a wonderful human being. It's going to sit on the right hand of the father when he leaves us. But 
are there any regrets on choosing Merrick Garland? And is there any, are there any regrets at all on the strategy for pushing? Did we push hard enough? So here, I I can take the Merrick Garland part. I mean, look, Angela, they were going to do this no matter who the nominee was. And I think this is what we see now, right? Mitch McConnell has no shame. He doesn't have, he doesn't care about any of the values that we care about. He doesn't mind trampling on them. And he would, it would, it, it, a black woman, it would, they would have treated her the same as well. Quite frankly, actually, they would have really put her through, you know, an enormous, you know, tearing her down as well. I mean, I think what President Obama did in picking Merrick Garland was to try to pick someone that actually you know, had passed out. I think, I think he got confirmed to the circuit court by like a 98 to zero kind of vote, you know, that, that really had things that they could not go after him on the merits. So actually the raw exercise of just shameless power in refusing to even give him a hearing was laid bare because they had no other reason not to, right? There wasn't a qualifications issue. There wasn't a political point of view issue that you could attack Merrick Garland on. Now, the problem with that, to our earlier conversation, is having done that, we did not make them pay at the ballot box in 2016. That's our problem, right? Because they are in the position they are in now because having seen what they did to Merrick Garland to the point where our voters don't care about the courts enough and didn't focus on it, we lose, you know, we lose, right? We don't, we lose the, the White House, you know, we lose those Senate, key Senate seats. And that's the thing that really to go to your like, what next? <laughs> like the next 36 days or whatever it is that's left, that can't happen again. We just cannot let that happen again. I mean, I, 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 I also go back to 2014, right? Like it's in 20, it's the midterm election of 2014 where Mitch McConnell picks up the nine seats that gives him the majority that allows him to block all these justices. And what did we do in 2014? Oh, we responded to the last bit of the first black president by showing up to the polls with the lowest voter turnout in this country since 1942. That's what we did. All right. So so at some level, and I, I, I totally agree with Tina here, like I, I'm happy to blame the Republicans for like everything. They're terrible. But at some point, you have to have people kind of standing up and saying no to them at the polls. Right. You, I, I, I can go back to 2004. Right. Bush did not win the popular vote in 2000, but he did in 2004. They, he was legitimately reelected in 2004. And it was after 2004 that he appointed Sam Alito and John Roberts. So like at some point, Democratic voters need to like keep their eye on the ball. And that eye is that there are three branches of government, not just two. So I would just say, like, I wasn't there in 2016. I don't know what all of the what all the decisions went into this. But I think one of the fundamental challenges is that, again, when we approach the courts, we try to depoliticize them. But that doesn't leave us with anything to fight for. Right. Like nobody's taken to the streets to fight for Merrick Garland. He is a great guy. Nobody. A, a more. But he's also like he's a more moderate former prosecutor, white guy, judge like. He's not somebody that's going to get you excited. I am very proud of the record of President Obama's judges during that time. But we were playing by a different set of rules. And I think one of the things we have to look at when the Republicans have thrown out the rule book 
is how are we going to start nominating? Kristen talked about this a little bit more. How did we? How are we going to start nominating civil rights lawyers and public defenders and public interest lawyers, people from the ACLU that is going to galvanize our folks so that when they get blocked, they're going to be mad. They're going to go to the streets. They're going to call their senators. They're not calling their senators because their senators blocked yet another corporate lawyer or former prosecutor nominated by President Obama or possibly Joe Biden. But they will pick up the phone for an ACLU lawyer who's been out there on the streets every day fighting for us. And that's part of the dynamic that just has to change. So I'm going to share my wish if we could turn the clock back. The Constitution says when there's a vacancy on the court, the president gets to nominate. And the Senate has to provide advice and consent, right, which contemplates doing something. And to me, if we could turn the clock back, I wish that after first month, second month of the Senate doing nothing, not even so much as meeting with Garland, I wish that President Obama took a bold step and said, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and swear him in because you have failed. You have abdicated your constitutional obligation to provide advice and consent on the nominee that I have put forward. So you know what? Game over. I'm just swearing him in. Bring a Bible, have him swear in, have him swear in and report to work. And then we see how that plays out. Wait, could they have done that? He could have done that? Why not? Why not? And maybe there's a, a, a legal battle that plays out in court. But what does advice and consent mean? Advice and consent. Damn it, Kristen. Kristen, you're giving Donald mean. Trump some ideas now. Now he's going to be swearing in all kind of people. You know this boy has no. But I want to hear this. I want to hear it. But this is different. This moment is different. I mean, that was 11 months before an election. This is playing out while voters are actively casting ballots in this. This has never happened before and, and should never happen in a democracy where voters are actively going right now and saying, you know what? Top of mind is Supreme Court. Top of mind is who should be the president who fills this vacancy? Top of mind is who should be the senator sitting in that seat voting on the nominee? And to me, we send a dangerous message. When, when we are in the middle of an election trying to have a hyper-politicized confirmation process. Like this whole thing is a sham and should be ceased. This schedule where they're going to start on October 12th and finish before election day. Like we've never had this happen in our nation's history. There's never been a nomination after July. So it's a travesty. Yeah. It's a sham. And it, it and we need to speak out and object at every turn. Yeah, you know, so- and absolutely. I mean, we're all, you know, you know, folks here who care about the courts. Clearly, Ellie has because he has been studying it since he was a teenager. <laughs> but since he was but, in the womb. Yeah. But think, think about this prospect if they go forward with this. You could potentially have somebody go on the court days before an election where my personal hope and dream to get to personal hopes and dreams back to that, Angela, is there is a landslide against the man who just put her there. Yeah. And what does that say about the Supreme Court? I mean, what does that say about where the majority of the country will feel about now where the Supreme Court sits for, as you pointed out, a generation to come? And you know what? As And, and the, the six to three notion of it being a conservative court is devastating. But the institutional issue for our democracy 
about how we feel about this major institution in our country mm-hmm. is really damaging. It is long-term damage to the fundamental principles that we're built up. Um, and and, and that, that's the thing that is so, you know, the Republican Party and their leadership, their inability to care about that, to care about the fundamental institutions that they swore an oath to, to uphold when they swore an oath to the Constitution, when they, it, it, that is the piece that is where the world has changed, right? I mean, I don't, I, I think that's what's different, Kristen, than the idea thought of that in 2014, you know, in, in 2016, because this idea that you would just go against the institutional foundations wasn't anything anybody did, and they do it every day. Every Donald Trump does it day. every day. Every single day. And so as we walk down memory lane a little bit, I want to come back a little closer where we are to 2018 with Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. And I want to just for a moment... Um, Chris, I know you have some strong opinions about this also, um, but I want for a moment for us to just understand as we think about Brett Kavanaugh and what may be an imminent um, confirmation of um, the bootleg notorious, what, can't, we can impeach these judges too, though. So I want to talk about, given the fact that you've said, look at Tina's face every time I say something crazy. Um, Chris, you've said that 90% of Brett Kavanaugh's record was hidden from the American public. And if that's the case, and if they won't share his record, I just want to know why we can't impeach them. If we're, we got to fight fire with fire, where are our flames at, Chris? Where are they at? I think that that is actually a legitimate question for a Democratic Congress and for the Department of Justice to look at. I think with Look, a lot of attention went, I think, appropriately to the credible allegations of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh, and that is the entire FBI process was a sham, and that needs to be looked into, how they did it, and what they did or didn't do. But also, there are a lot of instances where it seems like Brett Kavanaugh lied under oath. And perjury, as we all know, is an impeachable offense. And so I think one of the things that Jerry Nadler and Hank Johnson, the chairman of the relevant committees, have done is they've asked the archives, give us all of the rest of those records, the records that you did not release to the public, we want them, and we're entitled to them. The archives seems to be slow walking them now, but I think a President Biden could move them along, let's see what the facts are, and then let's see if the evidence points to what we think it does, that he lied, flat out lied repeatedly from his very first confirmation hearing for the D.C. Circuit to his second one, to his Supreme Court, his Supreme Court hearing, then I absolutely think impeachment needs to be on the table. But, you know, here's here's another thing that that point, Chris knows this well because he prepared our nominees for this. The other thing they're doing with this truncated process is we're entitled to have those hearings. Think about what comes out in the hearings, right? You know, the stuff that we knew about Brett Kavanaugh didn't come out the day he was nominated, didn't come out in the three weeks after he was nominated. And you know, you do not know what will happen when somebody is, it doesn't matter if they were scrutinized for the lower courts, because this is different. We know it's different. We've seen it play out. Robert Bork, I mean, go down the list of people who we learned about them. We learned about things about them, Clarence Thomas, because of what happened when they were nominated to the Supreme Court. And there was a hearing, there were investigations that took place at a level that does not exist elsewhere for good reason. And they're truncating that too. 
So we don't get a chance to look at Amy Coney Barrett's record, whether it's her judicial record, her prior employment records, any of the things, you know, what people who worked with her experienced and thought about. We're entitled as an American public to know that about someone who's going on the Supreme Court for decades. And they have truncated that process as well. Because, I mean, Chris knows, because he had to assemble all those boxes for our nominees. It's really big what you have to do. And then the Senate has to be able to understand that I digest it and ask good questions and ask for more investigations. They've also truncated that. We're supposed to do that, all of that, in just a week or two? I mean, can, I, I hate to be that guy, but but can I... Oh, sorry. Angela, I don't hear you. That's not helpful. I put it on mute so that I wouldn't be doing all my mm mm-hmms. But Ellie, I was going to say, I want you to respond, but I also want you to answer the other ways that we can fight back. I think that's really important because part of the reason people aren't ginned up about going to vote or even ginned up about the courts, they don't see us fight. So what are some of the ways that we can be fighting back? But answer the first part you were going to check. Actually, I want to answer the second part first, and I can roll back into the first part. Um, Look, there isn't a lot we can do right now. We're in the minority. Um, They have the votes to confirm her. We're not stopping this train. Again, the time to stop that train was 2014 or 2016 or whatever. We can't stop this train. The the question is what we're going to do next. And that is how I come to an aggressive court expansion platform. I mean, when you talk about fighting, what you have to start from the premise of is that this institution, as the Republicans have have manipulated it, is now illegitimate. What Gorsuch being on and Garland not is illegitimate. Um, An alleged attempted rapist being on without a thorough investigation into his many, many, many 83 ethics complaints of crimes is illegitimate. And certainly Amy Coney Barrett being pushed through after an election has already started is illegitimate. The way that you deal with the illegitimate uh, institution is to expand it and add legitimate justices to balance out the illegitimate ones. That is the play. That is the only play. And this is where I really get a little bit annoyed with Democrats who are just like, oh, well, there's so many other things we can do. We could we could do term limits. No, you can't do term limits. Term limits, unfortunately, are unconstitutional. That's not me saying that. That's that's the people on the Supreme Court who get to decide whether or not something like term limits is constitutional. They will say it's unconstitutional. Democrats think like, oh, we just need a couple of more judges. No, no, no. As far as I can read the tea leaves, only Stephen Breyer, one justice, has even suggested he might be interested in term limits. If you want term limits, then what you need are 10 justices on the courts who support term limits to overturn the nine that most likely do not. That's how you get term limits. I hear Democrats say like, oh, we'll add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. Guess who will nullify the statehood of D.C. and Puerto Rico? It is the six to three Republican Supreme Court. Court expansion is the only play. It is the only thing we have left to do to fight these people. That is this. That is the answer to you. To your, what do we do to fight? Now, the thing I was going to say about the first question about why don't we fight to this point is because the Democrats, and I'm sorry, I hate to be this guy, but the Democrats have not shown the stomach for this. Mitch McConnell, much as I hate him, has 
intestinal fortitude. He is willing to stand astride history and yell stop. He is willing to um, um, hamstring his own party. He is willing to risk electoral losses in order to control the Supreme Court. And there is nobody on the Democratic side that is willing to go to the mattresses for the Supreme Court. Not Nancy Pelosi, who promised me there would be an investigation into Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. That has not happened. Not Jerry Nadler, not Chuck Schumer, not Amy Klobuchar, nobody on the Senate Judiciary Committee has the stomach for what it takes right now. Because guess what, folks? It might be difficult. Republicans might be angry. Joe Manchin probably won't vote for it. You're going to, there are going to be difficult political fights ahead. But those are political fights that Republicans are always willing to wage, at least, that our side never is. So what, what do we do to fight? It is as simple as start fighting. If we start fighting, others will join us most likely. But we have to start fighting. And the only way we can fight now is by expanding the number of justices. Can we get, can we get Ellie into a Democratic caucus meeting to just whip people into shape? I mean, when you listen to we gotta have to chop this up and send it to them via email. Like, y'all need some intestinal fortitude. Ellie, I feel bad for your kids when they get in trouble. I mean, that's a hell of a lecture you got. <laughs> anybody, anybody get the feeling that Ellie's not on the level when he says he hates to be this guy? I'm with you, Chris. But here's the thing, Ellie, I'm gonna do one more before that, is that we gotta vote. I mean, you can't do any of that with real teeth unless we get those votes in the Senate. You know, we take the Congress back. You know, we are, you know, we take the White House back. So this is, this is the thing. I am all about the next 35 days. We have to vote. We have yeah. to vote. Amen. You say that we, we have to stay focused, right? I think there's so much happening right now, but the biggest challenge in front of us as a nation is making sure that we all get out and vote. Voting is already underway. Election day is not November 3rd. The election season is here. There are people absentee voting. There are people going out voting in person during early voting. You know, if you're going to wait till election day, check and make sure your polling site didn't move because of the pandemic. The cards have shuffled. If we don't get out and exercise voice, all of these great and interesting ideas about reform and how we kind of re-strengthen democracy are, are, are frankly moot, right? It is critical that people get out and speak up. But one thing, I do not feel like we should turn our cards in on this, on this sham process that is about to get underway on October 12th. I think at every step of the way, we need to be making senators feeling deeply uncomfortable about going forward with a process that seems to be on like a two and a half, three week timeline. This is a sham process where they're trying to get Barrett in place so that she presumably is there to resolve any potential election related disputes that might come up. We know that part of her background and experience was serving on the legal team for um, Bush v. Gore. Uh, she represented George W. Uh, Bush in, in that saga. And we know that the Affordable Care Act has uh, already, already come up, is going to be heard during that first uh, part of November, right? And that's going to be a vote that could result in the loss of health care for millions of Americans. So anything that we can do to push for a real process that at least gets us to the point of hearing what Americans have to say, 
when they go to the polls, I think it's critical. I don't think that we turn it in yet. I think we raise our voices, we call our senators and we raise hell, frankly, and push this process out as long as we can and not surrender to uh, Mitch McConnell's dream plan of like a two week rubber stamp process. And I think that that's absolutely connected to the whole the whole rest of the theory of change, right? Like we're at this point now where, yes, Democrats on their own, 4751 are not going to stop this. This uh, They're not going to they don't have 51 votes on their own to stop this nomination. But you know what? We already have two Republican votes and it's only just begun. It's only just begun. It's much easier for Mitch McConnell to get senators to tweet and issue press statements before they've heard from their constituents. Poll after poll after poll, there are like 10 of them now that show that Americans want the Senate to wait until after the election, including some of them showing a majority of Republicans want them to wait. And we haven't even made the case about the Affordable Care Act and what they're going to do to Roe versus Wade. We haven't even made the case about just how extreme Amy Coney Barrett's record is. And so we've got to prosecute this fight and not give up. And so, look, there are some senators out there, Republicans, who I'm sure they're not going to be swayed at the end of the day, but then they have to face the electoral consequences. They have to be held accountable so that on the back end of this, we can really have a conversation about adding seats to the Supreme Court. But I think Kristen's absolutely right. In this moment in time, we have to make this as politically unpopular and difficult of a vote as we can for Republicans. And if they do it anyways, then they have to face the consequences on Election Day. I want to just raise this, too. Um, For demand justice, um, Chris, you have several black women listed as potential Supreme Court nominees. Kristen, you are on that list. I'm surprised Ellie didn't make the short list um, that it doesn't just include black women. But um, I also want to flag um, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's been talked about quite a bit. Katanji Brown Jackson, who was one of the black women discussed around the time of Merrick Garland and so many others. Can we just for a moment talk about how Joe Biden, um, you know, this year has made a commitment to put a black woman on the Supreme Court to Ellie's point? Maybe now he'll put seven um, because Ellie thinks uh, an an expansion even of just two won't do. So um, as we as we consider that, can we also Um, Just weigh in on the importance of adding a black woman to the Supreme Court, given the dynamics that we know um, have already been discussed. Some of them just about the fact that there's no civil rights um, experience now on the bench, especially with the addition of this woman who's the antithesis of civil rights experience. We know that George H.W. Bush in nominating um, Clarence Thomas completely undermined the amazing legacy of Thurgood Marshall. Um, and that is intentional shade to Clarence. So can we talk for a minute about the importance of adding a black woman, um, a black woman to the bench? Absolutely. Look, look, you know, 113 Supreme Court justices, only three people of color, only four women. This doesn't the courts never represented the American, the American democracy. Right. And so this is a moment where. Vice President Biden has made a commitment that he's going to nominate a first black woman to the court. And it's incredibly important that we hold them to account. And so we have, at Demand Justice have launched a project called She Will Rise. You can check it out at sistascotus.org uh, uh, or on Twitter or, or Instagram or wherever you may find your social media. Um, but part of what we're trying to do, too, is it's not just any black woman, right? This is part of the challenge here. As Vice President Biden said, I'm going to nominate a black woman. The conversation was like, all right, well, is it going to be this woman or this woman? And we said, well, 
it turns out there are a lot of amazing black women lawyers who should be part of this conversation. We have to expand this conversation so that we're including civil rights lawyers. So we're like, like Kristen, it's a little awkward you're here, but I think you should be on the Supreme Court. I'm going to say that. Um, like Sherilyn, like so many other people, like these amazing black women academics, like these judges at the Supreme Court and at the district court and circuit court level throughout. And part of what we're trying to do here is broaden the conversation because there's such a wealth of talent, especially among black women, that has been neglected. And it's been neglected in part because Republicans have sought to block them. We talk about Amy Coney Barrett right now. She's already sitting in a seat that should, should have gone to a black woman. President Obama nominated Myra Selby, who was an Indiana State Supreme Court justice, to this very seat in 2016. And Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate blocked her so they could leave this seat open for Amy Coney Barrett. Now, four years later, she's showing up again. This is a seat that we think should go to a black woman. And she's taking it again. And so one of the reasons we have the situation is because we haven't been able to build a pipeline. We haven't been able to build a pipeline of black women on our federal courts. So this She Will Rise project fundamentally is about the time being now for a black woman on the Supreme Court. But it has to be that we have black women at every level of all of our courts because they bring a different perspective. They bring a different lived experience. They bring different professional experiences that we think absolutely need to be represented. Out of um, 210 judges that Trump has appointed to the courts, I think there's been one black woman. Um, you got to work. You got to work to achieve numbers like that in 2020. So we have a lot of work to do when order is restored in the world and we can get back to fixing all that's gone wrong with the courts. But black women have been iced out completely under this administration. White women, too, frankly. I mean, every white woman in this country should be enraged at the slate of predominantly white men white men that has been put forth at virtually every stage by, by Trump. Is this I where I get it. to talk about how racist the clerkship process is? <laughs> because <laughs> because the, pipe, the pipeline problem doesn't just start on the Supreme Court and doesn't just start on lower courts, right? Like one of the, one of the key, and, and people who aren't involved in law and certainly aren't involved in law at the very elite levels kind of don't understand this. But one of the key resume builders for your career in law is getting a Supreme Court clerkship, right? That is, you know, uh, um, hate to break it to, to, to people who haven't seen them do the work, but the justices do not research and write their entire own opinions, right? They have, they have research assistants. We call them Supreme Court clerks who do a lot of the, the, the backbreaking work of researching opinions and helping them write um, their decisions, right? How do, you get, how do you get to become a Supreme Court clerk? Well, usually you got to go to one of, if I'm being generous, 10. It's really three, but if I, let's be nice and say you've got to go to one of 10 or 15 law schools. You got to clerk for a lower circuit judge, which is why the lack of diversity in our lower circuits is so important. And then you have to be pucked by one of the Supreme Court justices from the lower courts to be one of their clerks. And that, that job is the job that allows you to get into almost any other legal hall of power in this country. It is that job that then goes on to make, makes you a federal prosecutor. It's that job that goes on and makes you a judge. It's that job that goes on and makes you a law professor. Pretty much anything elite you want to do in the law starts with that golden ticket of a Supreme Court clerkship. And those clerkships go predominantly, overwhelmingly to wealthy white 
male students, the occasional white woman student, and almost never um, people of color. Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, God love her, may her memory be a blessing, appointed two, had two, I believe, African-American clerks in her entirety time on the Supreme Court bench, right? Because she kept drawing from the same old pool of elite Harvard, Yale, Stanford clerks, as opposed to going out and looking for um, a diverse slate of clerkships. And she was not alone, and she's not alone in that problem. Um, it's, it's an entire system that when we talk about the pipeline, we have to understand that the pipeline is blocked for African-American and people of color um, at such an early level. It's blocked when they're, they're, they're cut off from that pipeline when they're 25 and 26 years old. That is astonishing. And I, I heard that it was one. So I'm glad she had two. That is nowhere near enough. Um, we know. But her her picks aren't much different than what we see in congressional offices. Overwhelmingly, black staffers who work in congressional offices work for black members. Same for Latinx folks. Same for Asian staffers. It is a huge problem. And we know that that problem remains also in corporate America, not excusing it at all. One of the things that you can say to trigger me immediately is, well, I can't find anybody. Well, where the hell are you looking? Right. And so that is exactly the point that you're raising, Ellie, about what we do to be creative about where we find talent. The, the thing that I, I really want to just close with um, with you all, because I could do this. We could have like four parts like we could walk this through this, these whole little sham proceedings to use Kristen's term because it's so needed. But I do want you all to talk for a minute, um, if each of you can. Um, I know each of you can, but if you will, what else people can do at home to fight back? Ellie, I am not with you on this point. I want us to fight um, for uh, the sake of giving our elected leaders courage where they may lack it or, or strength where they may have fear. Um, and, and then the other thing is knowing that the election is November 3rd, knowing that um, people have already started voting to Kristen's point. What are the things beyond voting people can do to ensure their voices are heard, to ensure that they are fully engaged in a process that, yes, in many instances, has left them out, has ignored them? We know that we need not only their voices, but their participation participation now more than ever. So what can folks do? I'm going to start with Tina because she is the co-founder of Times Up Legal Defense Fund. And we haven't even talked about that in, in the year of the 19th Amendment Centennial. I should start with you. Oh, well, thank you, Angela. And, and yes, you know, all these issues of representation that Ellie talked about, you know, that is also the key to breaking down those barriers is the key to addressing things like sexual harassment in the workplace, right? I mean, all of the, you know, the sexual harassment, I often say it is the symptom of a workplace that isn't diverse, isn't equal, isn't treating everybody fairly. So that is what we're working on. So what can people do? Well, vote, vote, vote is still my thing, right? I mean, no matter what, and no matter what the barriers are, you know, no matter, you know, two forms of ID, just go find it out and go get those two forms of ID. You know, they change the location of the voting place for you. Just go find out where the new one is. Somebody's doing something crazy at the voting place. Call Kristen. Kristen's got the voter protection hotline, which I'm sure she's going to give us all because everybody needs to have that. If you're standing in line and the electricity gets pulled right at your, you know, predominantly black precinct, right? You know, got you got to call that number and get lawyers on it right away. So that's number one. And then number two is to the point of making people and our existing political leaders feel it. People do need to call. 
People do need to call. It's harder when you're voting you know, in, 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 when you're in COVID because you can't go like to the district office and show up, but you can still email them. You can still call them. People need to be getting calls right now and not just red target states. We sort of make a mistake for those of us who are sitting kind of happy in New York or California or me in Chicago that we sit in these blue states. And yes, you know, well, I don't need to call folks. You still need to call your blue state officials because they need to hear it too. And they need to be able to walk into that hearing in the Senate Judiciary to say, my phone just blew up because everybody in my state is upset about this too, right? I mean, they need to have that strength to Kristen's point about giving them strength. That comes from us. And it doesn't matter whether we're in a blue state or a red state. Everybody needs to do that is to burn up the phone lines, burn up the email lines, um, with with this message right now about this process and how unhappy we are as the American people with this process. I'm going to back up what Tina said. Just uh, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to call. Um, um, my father used to be a, a, a politician, very low level local official. Um, but if you if you got his if you pull, if you uh, uh, got on his answering machine. Um, if you if you gummed up his phone lines, he would notice. Certainly in COVID, one of the things that we have is that politicians really like, you know, licking their finger and sticking it in the wind. And they can't because everybody's sick. So the only way that they can get they can get that 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 feeling of what voters are saying is through their phones. And again, Tina's so right. It is so important if you sit in a blue state to call your blue state senators to make sure they put their courage, the sticking post on these issues. I live in New York. I like to leave messages with Chris and Gillibrand that are basically like, I wonder what AOC would do right now. Hmm. Hey, when can she run for office? Like straight up, right? Like, like I, cause, cause, because that's what I need Kristen Gillibrand to do right now. I don't use my real voice either. It's great. But you but, just told on yourself. You just Kevin Duranted yourself, Ellie. Like everybody knows now. The whole, the whole This is crazy. I'm cutting this. This is great. It's okay, you really probably should. My point is, is that I I call my let me start. I call my blue state senators like Chuck Schumer and Christine Gillibrand and try to encourage them to take some of the more aggressive positions because they never will if they don't hear it from voters in their own constituencies. So I was at the court for almost every single day of the Kavanaugh hearing. And you know what? A curveball kind of came in the middle of the process. The Senate Judiciary was about to vote and then they decided to slow things down and they did that. You know, they spent a week doing that FBI report and it didn't yield. It didn't turn out the way that we wanted. But you know what? You just never know. I think it's important that we not give up on this fight, that we apply pressure to our senators, make them deeply uncomfortable if they've taken the position that they are signing on. You know, speak out and protest the idea of a sham hearing of two or three weeks. Usually Supreme Court confirmation hearings take like two months. We're talking about a lifetime position on our nation's highest court. So for people who are listening, I'm going to ask you to pull out a pen or take out your phone and plug in two numbers. The first number is 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. That's how you can reach your senator. 
Call them and let them know that you object. You object. Let the voters be heard. Let's wait and let the voters be heard. The second number that I'm going to ask you to plug into your phone is 866-OUR-VOTE, 866-OUR-VOTE. If you are at home and you're wondering, gosh, all right, they're saying I should vote. I don't know. What do I do in the midst of this pandemic? We're working seven days a week to empower voters with all the information that they need to to, uh, they need to get out and absentee vote, to go out and vote during early voting, to go out and vote successfully on Election Day, to register to vote. It's not too late. It's not too late. So call 866-OUR-VOTE. And then the last thing I'll just say, Angela, because I just want people to understand how real this is. Even something as basic and fundamental as Miranda rights, right? Like when you get arrested, the cops read you your rights. This woman even takes issue with the idea of the Miranda warning that typically gets issued to people. She's said that it is over enforcement of a constitutional norm and that Miranda warnings inevitably exclude from evidence confessions freely given. This is a nominee who would turn our country on its head. We have to keep fighting until the bitter, bitter end. So I'm going to repeat a lot of what everybody else said, but I'll say it slightly differently. Look, I think that this, the fight for me that this is like, is like the Affordable Care Act, right? Where Mitch McConnell and Republicans thought they had the votes. They thought they had the votes until they didn't. And so that's why we have to fight to the end. Kristen said, you know, there was a one-week delay in Kavanaugh. It didn't change the outcome. A one-week delay here could change the outcome. If we're able to at least push this debate, push this vote past the election, if the election results turn out the way some of us hope they will, it could be a whole different ballgame, right? So we have to do step-by-step. The first thing is to call your senators. And absolutely, you know, Tina, I think part of this is some people don't even know you're sitting in Chicago. Dick Durbin has not said that he's going to oppose Amy Coney Barrett yet. How is it that the number two Democrat in the Senate has not taken a firm position yet? So you don't even know where your senator might be. So you should call your senator. You should call both of your senators. When you're done with that, you should call your friends and make sure they call their senators. Right. This is part of this. And then do it again the next day. They have to keep hearing from you over and over and over again. And if people feel safe, if there's social distancing, if depending on where you live, there are going to be in-person protests because this is how upset people are about what Republicans are doing to rush through this sham process to confirm a justice, to rule in these election cases for Donald Trump and to rule to strike down the Affordable Care Act. And the last piece here that I think is so important is the storytelling. I think that's what makes a big difference in the Affordable Care Act that makes a big difference generally. We've talked about a lot of different ways that the Supreme Court affects you. I guarantee you, whatever issue you care about, whatever struggle you're living with, whatever challenge you've overcome, the Supreme Court has either made it better or makes it worse. And with Amy Coney Barrett, it's going to be worse. And so finding ways to tell your story, especially people with the 130 million people with pre-existing conditions, the number growing by the day because COVID is going to be a pre-existing condition, those people have to start telling their stories, start showing up in different places because these, a lot of these senators are still doing town halls. They're still doing debates and they need to feel your presence. And they need to know that this process is not over, having given up the fight, 
And we're going to take this not only to Republicans, but to the Democrats, too, and tell them to step up. We need Democrats to show us how this process is different from any other because it is. And we need our Democrats to show just a fraction of the fight that Ellie's asking them for. Love it. I um I just want to echo everything you all said. Kristen, if there is a text number two, you know some of the young folks need to text because they're not gonna find our vote on the phone. So if you have <laughs> Oh my god. What's the text? <laughs> so you can text the number as well. You can text 866-687-8683. Okay, got it. But there's not like the shorthand, you know, they have like five digits these days. We don't have one of those. We're going to talk about that offline. We need to get one of those. <laughs> but um, so the thing that I wanted to say, Chris, and you just hit the nail on the head, that things are bad right now, but they can absolutely get worse. Young folks, for those of you who've never heard about the Dred Scott decision, I'm not saying we're necessarily going there, but I would urge you to read Chief Justice Roger Taney's um, decision where he said that Black people, whether enslaved or free, were not citizens in this country. And our ancestors fought entirely too hard to just be seen as human, to just be deemed as human. Ellie talked about George Floyd protests this year just to be seen as human and for the affirmation Black Lives Matter to finally reign true all over this country. We worked too hard to go backwards. And so we owe this, my Supreme Court right here, this fight, we owe them our fight. We owe our ancestors our fight. And we certainly owe future generations our fight. I am so, so honored and humbled that you all came to speak with us today. I feel enlightened. I'm clear-eyed, Ellie. I might call some people as Kevin Durant, you know, issuing Kevin Durant-like Twitter threats. I can't believe you did that. I'm totally cutting that and putting on social. It's amazing. But Ellie, <laughs> Kristen, Chris and Tina, I love y'all. Thank you so much. Please stay safe in these COVID streets and let's get ready for this fight. That's right. Thanks, Angela. Bye, everyone. Bye. For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight. Pray. They see God in everything I write here.